welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So, um, I'm actually not going to speak about prayer today. Paul is speaking about prayer. So, uh, what I want to speak about this morning is something simple and universal and profound. And that is the subject, and it does actually link with what we've just been praying about, how to be happy. I want to talk this morning, the Lord's been speaking to me about this, how to be happy. We heard this week uh, that antidepressants are uh, being used almost at an epidemic level. And by the way, I, I, I passionately believe that depression is a clinical illness that must be treated clinically. Uh, so I'm not against antidepressants in any way at all, but their use is, 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 is growing exponentially. We live at a time of vast uncertainty and anger uh, and fear. You know, I'm told that healthy children laugh 300 uh, times a day, and boring old adults only laugh five times a day. I listened recently to a talk by a Harvard professor that was the most popular class that Harvard University has ever offered, and it was on the subject, how to be happy. Everyone's asking this question. So we're going to look at the Bible together, but first I want to share with you one of my favorite all-time stories. And um, I can only share funny stories once in a while, because otherwise it's stopped being funny. I haven't used this at Emmaus uh, for about five years. I know Martin Bennett will remember it. But um, uh, this is the most delightful story. Um, um, and the background is this. There's a fellow uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, named Scott Williams, who likes to dig things out of his backyard. And then he sends the stuff that he finds in his back garden off to the Smithsonian Institute and labels them with scientific names and insists that they are actual proper archaeological finds. And uh, on one occasion, the um, chief curator of antiquities, Harvey Rowe, uh, replied to uh, this man, Scott Williams, uh, from the Smithsonian as follows. Dear Mr. Williams, I thank you for your latest submission to the Institute labeled 93211D, layer 7, next to the clothesline post, hominid skull. We've given this specimen a careful and detailed examination and regret to inform you that we disagree with your theory that it represents conclusive proof of the presence of early man in Charleston County two million years ago. <laughs> Rather, it appears that what you have found is the head of a Barbie doll. <laughs> of the variety that one of our staff who has small children believes to be Malibu Barbie. It is evident that you have given a great deal of thought to the analysis of this specimen, and you may be quite certain that those of us who are familiar with your prior work in the field were loath to come to contradiction with your findings. However, we do feel that there are a number of physical attributes of the specimen which might have tipped you off as to its modern origin. One, the material is moulded plastic, ancient hominid remains are generally fossilised bone. Two, the cranial capacity of the specimen is approximately nine cubic centimetres, which is well below the threshold of even the earliest identified proto-hominids. Three, the dentition pattern evident on the skull is more consistent with the common domesticated dog 
than it is with the ravenous man-eating Pliocene clam that you speculate roamed the wetlands during that time. <laughs> this latter finding is certainly one of the most intriguing hypotheses you have submitted in your history with this institution, but the evidence seems to weigh rather heavily against it. And without going into too much detail, let us just say that A, the specimen looks like the head of a Barbie doll that a dog has chewed. <laughs> B, clams don't have teeth. It is, it is with feelings tinged with melancholy that we must deny your request to have the specimen carbon dated. This is partially due to the heavy load that our lab must bear in its normal operation, and partly due to carbon dating's notorious inaccuracy in fossils of recent geologic record. To the best of our knowledge, no Barbie dolls were produced prior to 1956 AD, and carbon dating is likely to produce wildly uh, inaccurate results. Sadly, we must also deny your request that we approach the National Scientific Foundation of Phylogeny Department with the concept of assigning your specimen the scientific name Australopithecus spiferino. <laughs> Speaking personally, I for one fought tenaciously for the acceptance of your proposed taxonomy, but was ultimately voted down because the species name you selected was hyphenated and didn't really sound like it might be Latin. However, we gladly accept your generous donation of this fascinating specimen to the museum, and whilst it is undoubtedly not a hominid fossil, it is nonetheless yet another riveting example of the great body of work that you seem to accumulate here so effortlessly. You should know that our director has reserved a special shelf in his own office for the display of the specimens that you have previously submitted to the institution, and the entire staff speculates on a daily basis what you will happen upon next in your digs at the site that you have apparently discovered in your Newport backyard. We e eagerly anticipate your trip to our nation's capital that you proposed in your last letter, and several of us are actually pressing the director to pay for it. <laughs> we are particularly interested in hearing you expand on your theories surrounding the transpositate infiltration of ferrous metal in a structural matrix that makes the excellent juvenile tyrann Tyrannosaurus rex femur that you recently discovered <laughs> take on the deceptive appearance of a, sorry, of a rusty 9mm Sears Craftsman automotive crescent wrench. <laughs> Yours in science, Harvey Rowe, Chief Curator Antiquities. Isn't that great? I just love the playfulness uh, of this exchange. I love the sheer kindness of Harvey Rowe, which has turned a potentially annoying distraction into a sheer delight. What does this have to say about how to be happy? Well, uh, we're going to look at the 19 words of the Bible. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, one of my favourite passages, you can see it behind uh, me here, and the Apostle Paul says this to us, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Everyone wants to know what God's will for their lives is, they want a bit of guidance, they want to know what he wants them to do. Well, the Apostle Paul says, God's will for you in Christ Jesus is continual joy, continual gratitude, and continual prayer. 24-7 joy and gratitude and prayer. 
the surprising aim of Christ's teaching. In John chapter 15, verse 11, he says, it is that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Jesus gave us his way of life that we might be filled with joy. And then a little later, when Jesus prayed for the disciples and for us in John chapter 17, he prayed that we may have the fullness of his joy within us. So Jesus is full of joy, and he prays we would experience that too. And then the Apostle Peter, the great leader of the early church, writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, Pray that we may be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Not just some religious, I'm really happy. You know, I've got the joy, 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 joy down my heart. You know, an inexpressible and glorious joy. The church father, Oregon, said that Christ's mission was to implant in us the happiness which comes from knowing him. And... I want to be honest with you, I don't find this massively easy. I find it very attractive, happiness, glorious joy, but I don't find it massively easy for various reasons. The first is my lifestyle. Sometimes I get crazy busy. The last few weeks have been crazy busy for me. And when I'm busy, I eat badly and I exercise poorly and I sleep inadequately and these are not good if you're wanting to live joyfully. Secondly, I find this stuff difficult because of my personal psychological and emotional makeup. I'm quite sort of artistic, and therefore, where some people seem to live their lives on this beautiful, even plane, they're just like consistent. I, I, I know the highs and the lows of life. I live in primary colors. I get really uh, down sometimes, but I also have a phenomenal capacity for stupidity and excitement. <laughs> I've always rather liked that line from one of my favorite singers, Bruce Coburn, in his song, Coldest Night of the Year. He says, I was up all night socializing, trying to keep the latent depression from crystallizing. And now the sun is lurking just behind the Scarborough horizon, and you're not even here on the coldest night of the year. I, I often think of that line. I sometimes feel that I'm trying to keep a latent depression from crystallizing. I'm sure some of you know that feeling. And then I also find this happiness and inexpressible joy thing tricky because of my vocation. When you're a pastor, you are continually coming up against and feeling the pain of other people. And it's a great privilege, but it can be heartbreaking. You become acutely aware, maybe even disproportionately aware, of life's troubles. And then just as a Christian, we're often not very good at this happiness and joy thing. Uh, we, we tend to be seen, maybe correctly at times, as being over-earnest and over-intense. I remember in the early days of 24-7 prayer once, we found um, a website, I don't know if it still exists, that depicts Bible stories in Lego. And it just vaguely amused me. It wasn't the funniest thing I've ever seen, but it sort of amused me. <clears throat> so we posted a link to it on our website. We had numerous emails saying, what was that? What was the significance of the Lego? Like, what, why was it there? What, what's it for? What's the meaning of it? And, 
And I was like, oh my goodness, we've got to take it down, we've got to justify it, find a Bible verse for Lego, <laughs> Adam and Eve and naked Lego pieces, you know, and all this. And I just thought, for crying out loud, the moment we need a Bible verse for just something, we just ended up applying, we thought it was funny, sorry, was that standard reply. Holiness has more in common with happiness than it does with heaviness. Sandy Miller always used to say, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is not intensity, but joy. Uh, and, and sometimes we are terribly intense. I'm not sure Jesus was always terribly intense. So how do we do this? How do we live with greater joy and gratitude? Well, Philippians 4 verse 4 is very similar to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Because the Apostle Paul uh, says there, Rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. Rejoice always. Uh, again I say, rejoice. Uh, um, sorry, I've just misquoted that. Rejoice in, this is the whole point, rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. And, and I had to correct myself there because that is the whole point. Paul isn't saying here, you know, just be happy, clench your buttocks and be one of those horrible people who's like a positive thinking, you know, someone stubs their toe, they say, hallelujah, I'm so thrilled that you stubbed my toe, or whatever. You know, it, it's, it's not about that. He's not saying that your circumstances will always be joyful. What he is saying is you can always rejoice in the Lord, even when it is in spite of your circumstances. I also want to say this, that uh, I, I am reiterating it very deliberately, depression is clinical. If you're in a place where you, you, your, your emotions are just flat and shut down, or, or you're really actually despairing, everything is grey and you just can't get out of it, it may be that there's actually something clinical going on. And we believe that, that, that God's heart is for us to be joyful and happy, and, and to know the colour of life, and he may do that through, you know, prayer ministry, but he may also do it through medication. And so I just want to remove any stigma at all uh, from that. One of the things that helped Sammy in the past when she was trying to process some of the tragedy that she's lived through was actually realising there are physiological reasons, neurological reasons why I'm struggling with depression, and for a season she had to take antidepressants. That was helpful. And didn't stay on them. Forever. Do you mind me sharing that, darling? <laughs> Husbands, look and learn, look and learn. It's a masterclass. <laughs> For Christians, life isn't pain-free. It isn't uh, any easier than it is for other people. We're not immune from the problems that go on all around. One of the great verses that's often quoted, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Well, the whole point is it starts with, uh, all things are going to happen to you, but they're going to work together for good. And a little bit later, uh, the, the Apostle Paul there, uh, lists sufferings and hardships and persecution, all the difficult things that come to us. We experience the pain and the difficulty. But we have a hope that somehow, as we love God and are true to the calling he's placed in our lives, that even bad things can work together for good things. Uh, talking in the foyer earlier to Katie Miller, I don't know if you'll mind this because she and Benji have talked very openly about this. 
you know, Benji, their son has had a lot of great challenges uh, and has really come through those, but she was just sharing how out of uh, the pain and the difficulty that they've gone through, they are now managing to help lots of other people. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you ever look back and think, I'm glad it happened. You hate that it happened, but you can see some redemption and some hope in what God is doing through the suffering that you've experienced. And that would be Sammy's and my experience too. And so we rejoice in the Lord when we can't rejoice in the circumstance. And when all things come against us, we believe that they can work together for good if we love the Lord. And these, these, these are the testimonies we, we find again and again. Uh, you know, um, one, one of the joys, I'm always talking about it, one of the joys here in Emmaus is having uh, the, many of the members of the Elan community, Iranian believers in this church. And, and uh, some of you will remember that when uh, David Yegnazar took me out to work and minister with some of the, the Iranian church leaders, I was so profoundly moved by those who'd been, you know, uh, interrogated and beaten and, and put in prison for their faith in Jesus. But, but again and again, what I saw in them was this joy. You know, Jesus came to meet with me in my cell, said Fashid. And, and I used to sometimes be so full of joy in my isolation unit and worshipping. And, and, and the guard would come and say, why are you happier than me? This is not a, a, an airy, fairy joy because everything's going well in his life. Everything's going badly. But he was able to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of the pain. Um, it's nice to see Chloe Ellis here. Now, her grandmother is amazing. Elizabeth Goldsmith is absolutely incredible at rejoicing always. She's just one of those people. She's fantastic at it. And I, I remember when uh, a lovely story of when Chloe's aunt, uh, Ruth Valeria, who's now a sort of you know, terribly proper person who appears on telly and, and, and is a sort of, she's spoken here. She's a, a sort of a, an expert on environmental issues. But she went through a goth phase and, and, and uh, came downstairs as a teenager once to go out for the evening and she was just completely dressed in black all over, black everywhere, black makeup, black lipstick and there was just one tiny piece of colour on her which was some pur purple eyeshadow and uh, I still remember the, the lovely story because this isn't what uh, you know mum dreams of, right, for their, their beautiful little girl who was playing with Barbie dolls only a few years ago and Elizabeth took one look at Ruth, and instead of going, you look dreadful, she looked at her and said, Oh, Ruth, purple does suit you so much. <laughs> you know, that's someone who's learned how to rejoice in all circumstances. <laughs> Pain is inevitable in life, but joy is not. And therefore, as I'm always saying, make it your sworn duty, make it your holy discipline to cultivate the circumstances for happiness in your lives, to celebrate the small moments of each day, to live with childlike wonder. It's so important. We sometimes think our job is to sort of be earnest, our job is to find the joy in the moment because we know that Jesus is, as Bill reminded us earlier, the source of all good things and he is with us. And as I often say to you, you know, Jesus only had three years to save the planet and he still found time to go on fishing trips and go to parties. Uh, which means that he was officially less busy and more fun than most people like me, most pastors. 
And so I want to just uh, draw this together by giving you five practical keys. And I hope at least one of them is useful as we seek to live with greater joy and greater happiness in spite of the challenges of our lives. The first one is this. I've learned that joy is contagious. If you get around joyful people, you become more joyful. If you hang around cynical people, then you become less joyful. So find joyful people and try and spend time with them. Secondly, I've discovered that joy is content. There is something around joy that is about contentment. And uh, conversely, a sense of entitlement is toxic for your psychological and emotional well-being. There's been a lot of studies uh, into this. Um, the, the Harvard talk looked at silver medalists in the Olympics and discovered that um, silver medalists uh, die earlier than gold medalists or bronze medalists. And some, you often see photographs of people getting silver medals in the Olympics and they look furious. And the reason is, the bronze medalists are there like, I made the podium, woo, you know. The gold medalists like, I won. The silver medalists are, I've been training at 5 a.m. for 10 years to get gold, I've only got silver. And, 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 and they said, isn't it interesting that they are unable to be at the Olympics with the national anthem playing, the crowd on their feet, having won silver and be happy. And it's proof that actually, um, Joy is not an absolute, but it is relative, and it's due with comparison. If you are unemployed in a place with high unemployment, you are less depressed, still incredibly difficult, than someone who's unemployed in an area with low unemployment. So joy is relative to context. And this great Harvard professor, one of her great conclusions is we've got to get better at counting our blessings and compare ourselves less with other people. I'm like, I learned that in Sunday school, but good luck with Harvard. I remember the lovely story of a man who'd been in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, and he just said, the first time he stood in a hot shower after years in this POW camp, he said, I just began to weep uncontrollably with gratitude. Just the ecstasy of standing in a warm shower. And I think I do that almost every day and it doesn't make me weep with joy. And so learning to celebrate the goodness of life and stop comparing ourselves with others. One of my favorite moments in movie history, in, in the movie Elf, do you remember the bit uh, where he, he there's a horrible little coffee shop in New York City, do you remember? And they've got this horrible sign outside saying, world's best cup of coffee. And he goes, he goes, well done guys, you did it, the best. And when he's got his date, he says, I'm going to take you to the best coffee shop in the world. <laughs> There's something about just celebrating the joy with even a naivety at times. One of the things Sammy and I have learned is that with some of the restrictions of having a chronic illness is that you, you can kick it at the walls. These, these walls, these restrictions. All of us live within restrictions. You know, even, I don't know, Bear Grylls, he's got restrictions. You know, he can't be in more than one place at one time. He can be married to one wife. You know, he's got you know, a nice big house, but you know, it's still not as big as some people's houses. There's been a lot of studies that have shown that multimillionaires actually aren't particularly happy because they're comparing themselves to billionaires. And so everyone's living with, with, with restrictions. 
And, and our restrictions just have to be a bit bigger than theirs because of a chronic illness. So it's a bit like we just live in a smaller house. And you can either just say, I hate this wall, I hate that our house isn't bigger, I hate that we don't have a bigger living room, or you can say, this is our home. These are our restrictions. These are the walls around our lives. Now, how do we make it beautiful? How do we live well? How do we live hospitably? How do we live sustainably within the little house that we've got to live in? It may not be a mansion. And so all of us, some of you here, I know you're going to do incredibly tough things. It's like you're in a very small house. There are a lot of walls around you, a lot of restrictions upon you, what you can do, where you can go, because of financial problems or health problems or family pressures. But how do you live joyfully, rejoice in the Lord? How do you find the Lord within your little house, the restrictions that you are facing? So joy is contagious. Be around joyful people. Joy is about contentment. Guard against comparison. Learn to count your blessings. Uh, and, and then thirdly, joy is also physiological. I, I, I find this very uh, important. One of the keys for me sometimes is I just need to get out to the gym. And I will feel happy. I hate going to the gym. Some people are like, Bill loves going to the gym. I hate it. There's never been a day in my life when I want to go to the gym. I only go most days because I, I put on my tracksuit when I wake up in the morning. I look like an idiot until I've changed out of it. And I don't have a cool tracksuit. My, 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 my gym kit is, is basically beachwear. You know, I just look an idiot and I think, oh, rats, I'm going to have to go to the gym now. I'm wearing my tracksuit. And, 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 and so I go grumpily. But... But it's good. I mean, there are actual reasons, you know this, uh, of happy drugs that get released. And, and sometimes I think we are so quick to come forward at church and hold out hands for prayer. And the Lord may be saying, actually, I've given you the answer to some of what you're feeling. It's around the realm of exercise and diet. And I know that for many people that's very, very difficult. I don't say that lightly and I, I want to be sensitive. But if we don't speak about physical issues... Uh, then, then we're in some weird Gnostic realm. We can only talk about spiritual stuff. And so think about exercise and diet. And as I say it again, if, you're, if, if there's a, a, a deep sadness upon you, it may be clinical. So again, you may need to respond to that in very practical ways. Fourthly, joy is spiritual as well as physiological. If you're carrying around a burden of guilt and shame in your life, don't just try and be happy and count your blessings. Deal with the sin. Get free of that. I can't tell you the relief. I often think, oh, I can't confess that sin. I can't repent of that. And, and, and it's this great battle. But when I do, it's like this, oh, such a relief. As Charles Wesley said, my chains fell off. And I was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The joy of being forgiven, the joy of light coming into darkness, of dirt being washed off you. And so if there are areas of sin that is going to drain your joy, and it should drain your joy because the whole point of sin is it is that which robs you of the life to the fullness which Jesus has died to give you. So uh, think about some of those issues, perhaps. And then finally, a key to joy, and we have it in this passage, is pray continually. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. 
How do we practice the presence of God in our circumstances, in our situations day by day? In the ordinary stuff, the normality and even the difficult stuff. That was the key for those Iranians in those prison cells. They learned to pray, to connect with God in the midst of their situation. That's the meaning of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, because thou art with me. It's practicing the presence of God in the midst, even of the valley. I've been reading the most beautiful uh, devotional book by Frank Laubach, who's a great... Um, missionary educationist in the Philippines. This is called Letters by a Modern Mystic. I'd encourage you to get it. It's a tiny little book and you can read it in about two hours and then read one letter each night before bed. But he made his great experiment to try and think about God at least every 15 minutes and often failed. But what comes through is just the sheer joy he experienced of being living with a greater awareness of God's presence with him. And so I'm going to uh, finish by reading you um, a story that draws together all the threads I've tried to lay out in, in a way that may seem surprising. And if you've managed to read uh, How to Pray, uh, the, the new book, you'll, you'll uh, come to this story, but it, it's one I love uh, deeply. And it's the story of a man called Dominique Voyon who is the abbot of a little monastery, a little uncloistered open monastery in San Remy, France. And at the age of 54, Dominique Voyon discovered that he had incurable cancer. He was going to die. And he did a very unusual thing. He left the monastery and he moved to Paris. And he got himself an apartment in a slum area and a job as a night watchman in a factory. And every night, he would work there and then come home and at eight in the morning he'd sit in the park outside his apartment and just feed the pigeons with all the broken people, the hungover men, the, 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 the winos, the, 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 the just displaced people who were hanging out at 8 a.m. in that park. And, and, and so this man, Dominic Voyant, he's not got it easy, right? He's living in a slum, he's got no money, he's dying of cancer. And here he is hanging out with nobodies, but just catch the holiness of this life. This is uh, how my, my, my friend, who's sadly died now, but uh, Brennan Manning writes about Dominique Vion, who was his abbot. Dominique never criticized, scolded, or reprimanded the people in the park. He loved them, he told stories, he shared his candy, he accepted them just as they were. And from living so long out of the inner sanctuary, he gave for peace a serene sense of self-possession and a hospitality of heart that caused cynical young men and defeated old men to gravitate towards him like bacon towards eggs. His simple witness lay in accepting others as they were without question, not allowing them to make themselves uh, sorry, allowing them to make themselves at home in his heart. Dominique was the most non-judgmental person that I have ever known. He loved with the heart of Jesus Christ. One day, when the ragtag group of rejects asked him to talk about himself, Dominique gave them a thumbnail description of his life, and then he told them with quiet conviction that God loved them tenderly and stubbornly, and that Jesus had come for rejects and outcasts just like them. 
His witness was credible because the word was enfleshed on his bones. And later one old timer said, the dirty jokes, the vulgar language, the leering at girls, it just stopped. One morning Dominic failed to appear on his park, park bench and the men grew concerned. A few hours later he was found dead on the floor of his cold water flat. He had died in the obscurity of a Parisian slum. Dominic Voyon never tried to impress anybody. He never wondered if his life was useful or his witness was meaningful. He never felt that he had to be something great for God. But he did keep a journal, and it was found shortly after his death in the drawer of the nightstand by his bed. His last entry in that journal is one of the most astonishing things that I have ever read. This is what he wrote. All that is not the love of God has no meaning for me. I can truthfully say that I have no interest in anything but the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If God wants it to, my life will be useful through my word and my witness. And if he wants it to, my life will bear fruit through my prayers and my sacrifices. But the usefulness of my life is his concern and it's not mine. And it would be indecent of me to worry about that. In Dominic Wyom, I saw the reality of a life lived entirely for God and for others. And after an all-night prayer vigil by his friends, he was buried in an unadorned pine box in the backyard of the Little Brothers of Jesus House in saint Remy, France. A simple wooden cross over his grave bore the uh, inscription, Dominic Voyon, a witness to Jesus Christ. More than 7,000 people from all across Europe gathered to attend his funeral. Dominic Vion's joy was infectious. His holiness was contagious. But it was not rooted in his circumstances. It was rooted in his encounter with the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so he could be in extreme need, but say, nothing really matters other than the love of God, and I have the love of God. And so the ultimate key to joy in Christ is not in an easy life, it is not in easy circumstances, but it is like Dominic Voyon to learn to pray continually. So we don't just say our prayers, but we become a kind of prayer. So we don't just try and experience the presence of God, but we become the presence of God for other people. So we don't just take communion at church, but we become the broken bread, the spilled wine for a world that is deeply guilty and deeply hurting. And somehow in that process, we get caught up in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle says, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the happiest, most joyful being in the universe. Thank you that the fruit of your Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace. We pray that you would fill us afresh today with your love and your joy and your peace. 
For some of us here, our circumstances are wonderful and it's quite easy. But for some of us, it's intensely difficult because we're going through great pain. Lord, I want to pray that you would bring the oil of gladness in place of the spirit of despair. I pray, Lord, for those who are weak and exhausted, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. And I pray that you would teach us to find you in every circumstance, that we might live 